Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. In today's episode, we talked to Judith Warner, the author of the new book, And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. This book touches on the important role that this middle grade period has in all our lives. And when we invited her on the show, we were particularly interested in that and the way we form friendships and how that affects our life. We were also interested in talking about what writers of middle grade books should know about that period. And we do talk about all of that. And Judith is fantastic. But we also talk towards the end of the interview about anxiety, perfectionism, OCD, and the writing process, and we really do get deep and personal in it. This interview really surprised both me and Megan in a really great way. Judith is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety, and We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication. She's also the author of the New York Times column, Domestic Disturbances, We discuss her writing career in more detail in the interview, but she began writing as a journalist, including working as a special correspondent for Newsweek in Paris, and she was the author of the 1993 best-selling book, Hillary Clinton, The Inside Story. We hope you enjoy this interview and find it as useful as we did, and if you've struggled with anxiety or OCD about the writing process and you have any tips, we would love to hear them, and you can hear that Judith is also interested in discussing this topic further. So please do get in touch with us at podcast at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks and enjoy this interview. We are really excited to get to talk to you for a million different reasons. um, And I hope we have, we end up covering most of them. We'll see. Um, But if you want to start by telling us a little bit about your writing, kind of what I know you have a book that has just come out in paperback, uh, which is about middle school and friendship and what that can teach us. And obviously that really keys into what Olivia and I love. If you want to just kind of give us a little bit about what you have written in the past and sort of your interests um, and tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to meet and speak with both of you. I have been a writer my entire career. I realized that I actually started to want to be a professional writer when I was still in middle school, when I just really by chance, when my mother was cleaning out her apartment, came upon this 30 page handwritten thing that I had written two weeks before eighth grade graduation. And um, it looks like the answer to some kind of questionnaire, I'm really not sure. But in it, I say that I want to be a writer and I talk about reading and all the books. I mean, I, I remembered, of course, that I always loved reading and read just nonstop. Um, but it was funny to see. And it was a little bit disturbing, too, to see that my writing voice now is just about exactly the same as it was when I was 13. So, I mean, that's probably not a good thing to admit to, but it was interesting to see. I started out, well, I, I always wanted and actually still want to be a novelist, but I was never able to successfully do it starting in college where I didn't get into the advanced fiction writing class really going to be airing like old terrible secrets and so I walked down the hall to I wanted to be a creative writing co you know like majoring in it with something else and in order to do that you had to get into advanced fiction writing so I didn't I walked down the hall and I got into the advanced journalism class so that was that I mean you know there really was not much of a higher calling that went into by going into journalism in the first place. Um, It was, I could do it, you know, and um, it's easier. It was easier. Um, So basically that's what I did with a brief hiatus of trying out a PhD in um, English and comparative literature um, where I really missed writing. So left, went back to it and started, Writing on women's issues, at, you know, this was the early 90s, so we didn't say gender studies yet at that point. I was actually, while working on a novel, I was working as a fact checker for Ms. and I loved it. And that really got me started on that path. I wrote the first biography of Hillary Clinton, and that came out on Inauguration Day in 1993. Um, and From then on, I just worked as a freelance writer, alternating writing books, a lot of ghostwriting, 
magazine writing, you know, just kind of trying to make my way in the direction that I wanted to then, which was basically to kind of try to be a cultural commentator um, and moved to France and, and wrote for Newsweek in France where I got to cover just about anything that was going on and it was amazing. Um, and then came back here and started writing book reviews and then eventually wrote um, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety that for me was really a, a book about the women of my generation. That was the initial impetus of it. Um, but seen through the lens of encountering American motherhood and having it be strange because I had become a mother in France. Um, and I guess that sort of created the, the place that I've occupied ever since, which is sort of a combination of um, women's stuff, mental health, because that's always been a really big abiding interest, um, and cultural commentary. Your whole career, and you've listed actually a lot of your um, articles on your website, uh, which we will link in the show notes. So, but it, I thought they were really interesting, and it really like covers a lot of ground and like familiar debates that I, you know, that we've all lived through. And then you sort of like you can see how they build on each other over time. So I think that's what's interesting about you. Like you have a fairly complete list of your articles, and I, I really thought I was like, what a journey we've kind of been on, and then also not, unfortunately, in a lot of other ways. That's, that's true. I mean, and, and it is true that the, at least from the point where I started being able to really do what I'd always dreamt of doing, which was when I wrote Perfect Madness, um, the work really does build on itself. And, and I realized at a certain point that what it comes down to is having the experience of encountering something in life that everybody seems to kind of take for granted or find normal and that I find weird. And I just feel like a stranger in the situation, like, like everyone's kind of getting it and I'm not. And the last three books have really all been that first, you know, the weirdness of being a mother here where everybody where it was such a struggle. It was so hard and so much harder than I've been in France. Um, and then I was perplexed by the frequency with which kids around me were getting diagnosed with mental health issues. And saw I saw that first through the lens that I had brought to Perfect Madness kind of of competition and perfectionism, which was the way a lot of people were talking about it at the time, like, oh, these parents just trying to perfect their kids with diagnoses and medication. And I completely turned on that. I mean, in the course of writing the book and doing the research, I it became a book about stigma and why we hold views like the views that I held before, which I now think are really offensive. Um, and then the last book on middle school is sort of the same thing. Like my kids got to middle school. I found the kids around them essentially, just like I remembered people being, you know, a generation earlier, if anything, a bit nicer, but found the world of middle school parenthood to be like ridiculous. And everyone just seemed to kind of accept it. And I was curious as to why you know, and why everyone anticipated that everything would be so horrible for our kids. And it seemed to me that kind of made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's kind of the thread that goes through. My husband says it more nicely. He says that there's this thread of just kind of wanting to tell people to be kind, <laughs> which is more flattering, although unfortunate. I mean, that probably is the message in all of them, but it isn't necessarily the motivation going in. Thank you. That, I mean, that leads really nicely into the question I was going to ask, uh, which <laughs> I, I mean, I think some of what you mentioned to us when we were just emailing back and forth about sort of about misconceptions, but also about how important those like those are the sort of periods where we're learning how to be in relationship with other people that are not in our family and um, that sort of thing. So and, and we take a lot of what we learn in that period into adulthood. But I'm also curious, so I have a question about that, just like unpack that maybe a little bit for us. Um, but I'm also curious about what you said just now about how like it's sort of like how the parenthood is lived as well is like a big contributing factor. So maybe I guess just talk a little bit more about both of those things. Well, specifically with middle school, what I noticed was going in and I, I have two daughters, I turned them into one daughter in the book just to try to protect their privacy a bit. And I think it worked because they couldn't tell who was who. So I figured the rest of the world wouldn't either. But 
I notice that I and all the other parents seem to just kind of anticipate that starting in seventh grade, you know, things were going to be horrible, that these were going to be the worst years of their lives. And we had to kind of get into battle mode to protect them. And what that seemed to translate into often was a lot of not being very nice to each other. I mean, and I'm talking about the moms, let's say, you know, because there would be kind of competing priorities, you know, motivations, and the highest uh, value was always placed on advocating for your child, you know, making, making sure your child was okay and was sort of getting what they wanted. And that created very often a pretty nasty atmosphere. And the kids themselves really weren't so bad. So, you know, there was, there was that piece of it that really struck me and that had me wondering who the 12 year olds were, who were walking around inside of all of us. Because I was with parents I'd been around for a long time and there was a change all of a sudden at that, at that age. People weren't getting along, people were talking behind each other's back, you know, and I was feeling things really intensely. I was feeling such intense distress watching what was going on. And it just seemed like a lot of us, were, we were getting triggered in different ways. Like stuff was coming out that was probably old and overdetermined. Um, and so that was my curiosity about it. And it was mixed with the sense of what are we carrying forward from when we were that age, but also what are we projecting onto the age in our expectations of what our kids are going to experience? And are those projections and expectations potentially making things worse? Yeah. So I kind of, I always say this sort of to, I don't know, kind of maybe call people's attention to the way they feel, because I feel the same way. And one of the things that really struck me in uh, one of the things that you wrote was how that age group, middle school, early adolescence is a time when, you know, suddenly children are developing a real sense of justice and they're intellectually incredibly curious and all of these amazing things that make these kids so awesome are there. And, you know, people say, oh, why would you want to teach middle school? And, you know, my response is always, well, I love middle school kids for these reasons. And then I jokingly say, well, and I figure that since nobody else likes them, if I like them, I better work with them, you know? Um, but the whole, the whole thing about how nobody else, nobody else likes them, um, that has to have such an impact on the kids because as the title of your book, you know, and then they, they stopped talking to me, you've talked in interviews about how the title can mean two things. One, the kids thinking they, the other kids stopped talking to them, but parents, the kid saying, well, my children stopped talking to me. But I think there's also this very real sense that from the kid's perspective, the adults stopped talking to them as well. And I don't know if there's something that you wanted to say. Uh, about that. Interesting, because I hadn't ever thought of that third interpretation of it. For me, when I came up with the title, it was clearly meant to be the experience of being a middle schooler and coming to school one day and nobody's talking to you. You know, that was an experience. Yeah. I had an eighth grade that was so scarring and I had realized a little bit just in life and then in the reporting for the book that this is a really common occurrence, right? And it is deeply scarring for whoever goes through it. Um, so that's what I thought. And then I discovered, my editor and I discovered when the book was going into production and the art department was trying to come up with covers that they were all interpreting it to mean the parent's perspective of suddenly having a kid who closes the door and shuts you out, which was a surprise when I thought, okay, fine, like if it works on both levels, makes sense. And um, I hadn't thought about it, as you just put it, in terms of the kids feeling in some ways abandoned by the adults in their life. And yet um, I think that they do in a lot of ways because it, it's true that adults by and large, not the educators who choose to work with them, who really like them. I mean, they, again, they, they are making the choice to specialize in working with this age group for the reasons you just said, because it's this moment really of intellectual awakening and greater, greater just openness to the world outside and everything is new and they're interested. They have such a, 
a strong sense of things. Um, They're so cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I now really appreciate that, but, but in the past probably would have been, you know, one of the people who said to a middle school teacher, Oh my God, you know, how can you do it? And they hate hearing that. I get, they get it at any, you know, cocktail party or, or dinner or anything. The adults it's true that adults have a very negative view of kids that age. And they have ever since they started spending large amounts of time with them, you know, which historically wasn't always the case. In previous centuries, most kids that age were actually starting to go out and work by the time they got to be around 12, you know, whether they were working as servants in other people's houses or working in the fields, or if they were wealthy, you know, being sent off to school. But the way that we live now with our kids staying in school, you know, and living at home and all of us being together and especially now are being so involved in our kids' lives, you know, all that's pretty new, but just just living together in an extended way and keeping your kids at school is something that really happened toward the end of the 19th century for middle-class people because there were more opportunities for kids if they stayed in school. So right away you see these these complaints starting in mother's journals and then in women's magazines. And when junior high schools first come to into being around the turn of the 20th century, the reformers who create them on the one hand had these kind of idealistic motivations, you know, that the kids were at this special point in their development and that they deserved a school that could meet their intellectual needs. That was part of it. And part of it was the sense that these kids were sort of at a uniquely corruptible age and corrupting age. So they needed to be separated out from the older kids in high schools and they needed to be maybe separated out from the younger kids, you know, on whom they could be a bad influence. And then of course there was overcrowding in schools, So there was that too. And, and the kids feel it. I mean, it makes sense. If you have not just individual adults reacting to you in a negative way, but structures that are set up to basically kind of put you in a pen with other people like you because you're so toxic, you know, it's not surprising then that there's this huge feeling of alienation so often. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, (laughs) that's really, it's funny, but it's not funny. Right. With all of this, as someone who writes young adult books and, you know, may or may not at some point write a middle grade, I haven't decided, but we also have a lot of listeners who write Kidlet and you know, obviously the biggest theme I see in, in Kidlet is especially middle grade is friendship and how to navigate clicks and friendship loss and friendship change as you're changing. But with taking in, in mind what you just said about how adults and really how society at large views this age group, what kinds of things would you say are important for someone who writes for this? I mean, you would hope that someone who writes for this age group has a real love for the age group. Um, but it is also becoming, it's an expanding publishing area. And so my guess is there are some people in there who don't necessarily understand the age, but are writing for it. Um, but with both sort of both things in mind, what would you say is really the most important thing to, or things to understand when writing for this group? I think it's really important not to underestimate them you know, not to write down to them Mm. or assume that either that you have to write to them in a sort of, I don't know, a a way that's geared toward their still being mentally childlike or not up to the challenge of really good and more complex writing. And at the same time, not overly limit the topics to the things that we adults remember as having been the prime obsessions of the age. And, and that really are the prime obsessions of the age, things like friendship and popularity, that kind of thing. Because I think that one of the great functions of, of good books at that age as at any age, but I think maybe even especially then is the ability to allow you to escape from your surroundings and kind of just go somewhere else. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of kids who are saved by reading at that age. I know that, that, I mean, I was, I read so much and discovered so much. And I, you know, the downside often, if you're someone like me, or I'm sure like you, both of you guys, is that you can end up reading things where that you understand without understanding, right? Because you can understand the words, but you don't have the bigger context. 
which is why I think it's great the extent to which adults can be present for their kids and enjoy the reading together sometimes. I mean, and by that, I mean, I mean, my, so when my daughters, our daughters were really little, my husband and I read to them all the time and we sort of split, you know, he read to my older daughter, I read to my younger daughter, largely because our, our tastes went in that direction, you know, in terms of what we like to read. And that lasted a long time. And both of them liked being read to years after they were reading independently. So I'm just thinking even my, my younger daughter, by the time she was in middle school, the reason I got so excited when I heard you were a middle school librarian is that I am still so grateful to the librarian at her school who really kind of saw her, understood her tastes, understood her level, how she was thinking, and gave her really good high quality books to read. And she also, it was interesting, she called me to ask if it was okay that she was giving her the books she was giving her because they were often dark and disturbing. And they were, you know, adult books that like the, the lovely bones, you know, something like that. And I said that I appreciated getting the call, but yeah, it was totally okay for all those reasons, because I felt like she was understanding and, and celebrating, right, who my daughter really was. And, and the books she was giving her were really well-written books, right? So she was developing a really good ear for good literature at the same time. But some of them, some of the, the ones that were disturbing in particular, she would then want to read together with me after she had finished them, or she would want us to listen to them as audiobooks. And I was thrilled because I discovered books I, you know, wouldn't have read otherwise. But I had the sense that it was a way then to be able to process it together and maybe even just experience whatever emotions in like a, a safer way, you know, where there's somebody else there with you. Because some of them were so disturbing, like I wouldn't have read them on my own, The Lovely Bones, for example, I would not have read because too upsetting or Room, I wouldn't have read. Um, but reading them together was just such an interesting and rich experience. So the, I mean, the other thing I would say with this is to recognize that kids this age vary so much and that we have to be able to recognize the degree to which they vary without, without judging it and sort of being very normative about it. And that's something I think is we do this in all different aspects of kids' lives. You know, we, we sort of have this norm that they're supposed to be at, and then we judge whoever is kind of an outlier in our either direction. And I think we do this a lot, particularly at that age, and it's the age that has the greatest variability, right? So, you know, just because some kids might be drawn to adult literature at that point, while others are still really reading kid literature, doesn't mean that the ones, you know, who are reading the adult books are like smarter or better readers. They're just, there's a sensibility, I think, that that comes into play. And then, of course, there are, I remember this with my own daughters, they could be reading something really complex one day and reading something from when they were nine the next. And I think it's really important to give them that the freedom without, again, without judgment, you know, without saying like, why are you reading that? You read that so many years ago. And to understand that it's a part of their inner world that's just unfolding. I think I probably reread the Little House books even at that age, just because they were so soothing, you know? Um, so that's what, I guess that's what I would think. I would think that, I remember there's a, I, I used to write pre-COVID at the DC writer's room all the time. And there was a woman there who writes um, novels for kids this age. And when she would tell me about them and describe the topics, I was always fascinated by how complex they were, you know, historical fiction, um, just, you know, complicated subjects that were absolutely fascinating to me as an adult and that were fascinating to her. That's why she wrote about them. And I would think that um, that's what you have to be writing from. That's the place you need to be writing from, your own passion about something that you're then going to convey to someone who happens to be younger. And I think that if they, if we write too narrowly to the obsession with friendship and popularity, maybe we don't give them much of a chance to escape. That's, that's kind of the concern I would have. By and large, I think my daughters avoided those books other than the click novels, which we used to listen to as audiobooks and find hilarious. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think I really like that as an answer. And I'm now going to like think about that and also think about what I was writing. I was definitely reading like a lot of biographies of serial killers. So um, <laughs> it's like really my my scene as at that age. I was curious, and this is like a very typical Olivia question. So if you don't like it, you don't have to answer it. But I was wondering just like if we were going to get very practical for people who are writing that sort of to that age group, what are the things either that you think like, yes, this person really gets it if you're reading that literature and you may or may not be, but I know you're sort of an expert at that age group um, or that you read and you think like, no big, huge, like X, like this book doesn't get it. Right. So I'm curious about if you have like rails either side, like this is really good or this is really bad. You know, it's funny. I feel like I'm not an expert in the sense of having a, you know, a sense of the, what's, you know, considered appropriate or inappropriate or what most kids do or don't like. I mean, what I, what I see and can say is pretty anecdotal or, you know, I have a sense of it historically, like reading about how YA fiction came into being and, you know, what there was for that age group or wasn't. So it seems like Again, there's such variability. We were in a couple of mother-daughter book clubs for, for complicated reasons. I'm not like a book club person and my younger daughter wasn't either. And it was a little bit of a nightmare. But, but part of the reason why it was tough is that, again, the range in tastes. You know, my daughter wanted to read. It, I mean, it was really one wretched thing after the next. And, you know, I get these emails from other moms saying, please, no, like, no, my daughter can't do that. Like that, it, that is just too dark. You know, the mother daughter Holocaust, you know, memoir is just, no, we can't do it. But we couldn't stand, she and I both like the stories that were about fairies and like, I mean, there, this was, it was good literature, right? It was perfectly good literature for that age group, but we couldn't stand it. And I think that's that's where where I start to have the issue and thinking kind of like what should you do what should you keep in mind I would think that you you have to just remain authentic to what you remember liking at that age or if you have you know if you're around kids that age what they like and what you can do well because it, it's sort of like saying what should you keep in mind for writing for adults I'm sure there are these kind of broad you know be authentic, have believable characters, have a strong voice. And I think it's probably just the same, the same thing. I think that's a great answer. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> There's just, there, there are better or worse written books for whatever age group. And it was actually in book club because I did it with both daughters. So we, you know, went through a set of books that normally we wouldn't have encountered, let's say, you know, if they were just choosing them. And I just remember being struck by the poor quality of the writing in, in a lot of the books for that age group and the, and the poor quality of the thinking too. And then, you know, at the other end, there's stuff that's just incredible that, you know, jumps off the page. So the woman who wrote Chains, you know, that series. Laurie House Anderson. Yes. I mean, her, yeah, writing, she's, you know, astounding. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point that, you know, just because you're writing for children doesn't mean you're not writing for human beings. Yeah. And they're smart and they do have mm. a sense of language and you want to really enhance their sense of language and you can, you know, at that age. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff is, I don't know, some, some of the stuff was that my younger daughter would get from the, not the school library, but the public library was so gross and vulgar and like, you know, almost pornographically sexual from the, the YA section that um, I have to admit that bothered me, not even so much in a like purely prudish sense, but it just in a sense of like, this isn't the seemed It seemed gratuitous. It seemed gratuitous. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm not reading that as a, like a 40 year old. Right. I mean, right, exactly. different reasons for that maybe, but like, yeah. Yeah, if it's grossing me out as a whatever age I was at that time, then like, eh, maybe it just is kind of gross, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your process. Um, how do you, just the nuts and bolts of research and organizing it and your interview, like you did a ton of interviews for this book and for your other book and just kind of how do you, how do you do it? And then you do both kind of short-term you know, magazine pieces, and then you work on longer projects. And that is, that's always my burning question. How do you do both? 
There's always an adjustment. I'll just start with that. There's an adjustment in, in going from one to the other. So if I've had a long period of writing magazine pieces or, you know, for the years when I was writing columns for the New York Times that were shorter and, and you know, weekly or twice a week, you get whatever form you're writing and you get used to it because you have to, right? And then you, and then when you make the jump to something else, it's a little, I've always felt like it's like relearning it again. And there's a, there is an adjustment period because you have to adjust the pace, the tone, the, the level of research, the degree to which you're carried by voice or you're carried by the news or, you know, other people's stories versus your story. I mean, it, it's, I really do find that there's, that I have to relearn it. It's weird. You would think that after all of these decades, you know, I wouldn't, but, but that's the situation that I find myself in. And, um, process is so important. And I can say that because, um, for my last book, it sort of went out the window. I was going through a lot of really hard things in my personal life and it kind of colonized my brain. And so my old systems for kind of getting organized, getting set up, and, you know, I started off that way, put it into place, but it then turned into just this kind of chaos. Like I wasn't even aware of it. And so I did a grotesque number of interviews because they were so great because I loved them because, you know, you ask people about their middle school experience and you get their whole life in two hours. And it's, you know, amazing. And I love listening to people's stories, but I ended up with like this, you know, vast amount. And then also I was just obsessed by that question of why do we think about middle schoolers the way we do? And did we always? So then I started reading on that and really went down like crazy rabbit holes. And in the past for other books, I was just better organized. I would have a, um, I don't know, a, a research, like a, a research outline basically that would follow the outline of the book that I had proposed when I had sold the book and the proposal. And then the topics would be broken down that way and the research approached piece by piece that way. And I embarked upon this with that also, but it kind of went out the window. And it's really important to have, I think everyone probably has a slightly different system, but it's important to have a system that works for you and to stick with it. I mean, the other thing I discovered with this, this time around was, I mean, in the 10 years between my last book on children's mental health and this book, the world had become much, much more digitized. I mean, it's funny to think that it could be in such a short period of time, but it really, was dramatically so. And so I was doing more stuff online and I was also, you know, trying to save paper and store more stuff online. And I realized at a certain point that it was impossible, that I had to have stuff printed out. I had to have like the same old system of file folders and stuff on pieces of paper in order to be able to think and in order to be able to find things, you know? And I know that there are really great online systems now for helping people organize their notes and find, you know, and I, I have a feeling it kind of comes down to the way you've come up in school and everything else in terms of how you store information mentally, you know? So if you're older and you've always done everything on paper, it probably is harder to transition to that way of doing things. But if you're my kids, it's probably the only way, you know, that you can do it. So, you know, in my case, the process, the, the, the sort of, difficulty is in stopping, is in not doing too much research and also in not doing too much rewriting. That's something that has all, I'm a perfectionist. So there's always been something of a problem with that. But in recent years, it's, it has actually accelerated into a form of OCD that I've had to, that I, that I now have to work on rating in because it can get completely out of, con out of control which is, you know, which is awful. And I'm, that's actually, it's something I'm talking about because I, I'm actually really eager to hear if other people have had that experience. Because um, it's terrible. While writing this book, I came to understand why, oh, I don't know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, you know, why they were alcoholics, like why Fitzgerald drank himself to death. I mean, because when you are having trouble writing and that's what you do professionally, it's horrific when something is going wrong in your brain and you can't do it. Is that something, and again, obviously answer or don't answer. I want to be sensitive to that, but like, is it something that you have 
like, how have you found your way of managing that? How do you deal with that? Because I mean, every, I think probably every writer has like a very tiny amount of that. You want things to be really right. But then I totally get what you mean about things sort of spiraling um, and it turning into something else and, and kind of how have you navigated that process if you want to talk about it, but again, you don't no, have to. I don't, I, I'm happy to talk about it because I would like to hear other people talk more about it too. Luvox, I saw a psychiatrist for the first time who, who listened to me describe what was happening and it sounded to her like OCD. I mean, I was describing how I would wake up at 4 a.m. convinced that finally I had figured out how to write something I'd been struggling on for a really long time and rewriting. And I described to her how one night I was like writing and writing and writing. And at a certain point realized that I was writing word for word what I'd already written the same day. And that it was almost like my hand was going independently of my brain. And things like that happened a lot, a lot. You know, I could sit and work for 14 hours and come away away with less than I had had going in. Um, because I had rewritten and thrown away so much. So um, that was, Blue Vox made a big, big difference. Um, It's the one SSRI that's uh, approved for OCD. Um, And then I probably with time, if it, you know, it's mostly gotten better, but if it comes back, probably have to do some kind of exposure therapy like like people do for OCD, somehow around writing. Um, I don't know what that would look like. I'm kind of fascinated to see what it would look like. Um, but you know, that kind of thing is very time consuming and expensive. So if it's not hundred percent necessary, I'm not going to do it unless I can get someone to pay me to write about it. Which is not impossible. No, <laughs> definitely yeah, with your background. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, I think that makes sense. Sorry, Megan. Go I ahead. mean, people, I don't, I don't know if other people often experience it as dramatically as I did this last time. I myself had never experienced it as dramatically as, as this last time. But, you know, when you, if you catch somebody, if you catch a writer on a bad writing day, as I did with a friend the other day, I heard the sound in her voice, this kind of panic and despair that I just recognized so well. And I said to her, get out of your office and go for a walk. And if possible, go for a walk with a friend and laugh. There's nothing you can do. You cannot write now. You're just going to sit there and be miserable. You have to interrupt it and sort of re, you have to, you need to reset your body. And I think she did. Um, But I could just recognize that sound in her voice. And so I think, uh, I think this is not so uncommon. No, I think it's really common. No, Megan knows. I'm like, I honestly, like hearing you talk about it, it's fascinating because I feel that I personally am like, spiraling a little bit about I like literally the only thing that gets me out of my bed to write in the morning is like my panic genuine panic when I wake up and I'm like something is really wrong with this book and I like I mean that's seriously where I start in the morning and then I have to talk myself down enough so that I can even just like open the file uh and I'm not sure I'm gonna put this in the interview frankly uh but like it's like I feels different than a normal level of concern about your book right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, I think you should put it in. I mean, because I think I would just be eager to know how many people experience this. When you think yeah. about, you know, what ends up happening to a lot of very famous writers, I mean, you know, how much they suffer and struggle. I mean, they're, they're mythologized, right? So, so we don't talk about it that way. We, there's, it's just part of their personal myth but of course you know how much of that had to do with the fact that they were struggling in their writing or you know I mean it's kind of like people who write probably have a certain sensibility in the first place you know that both fuels their creativity but bites them in the ass after a while also I don't know all of that fascinates me but it's really 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 hard and you feel when you're going through it you feel so helpless and if it's how you earn a living you know it's this horrible it reminded me of you know those of, of dreams I used to have of being in a car and not being able to reach the pedals, you know, that's what it would feel like. Like there was this disconnect that was, it was almost physical, you know, it felt like something physical and, and there was just no way around it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and pr- I, paralyzing I mean, too. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it's also like, it's interesting what you were saying. This is the last uh, comment. I'll let Megan talk after this, but because um, I've had some personal stuff going on in my life and it's like definitely ramped up as like yeah, with that, if that makes sense. So I'm like, totally. yeah, it's very interesting. So anyway, I just wonder if there's only if there's only so much our brains can handle stress. I mean, I, I'm not saying anything original, actually. I mean, when we're really stressed, our brains function less well, right? And I mean, I remember hearing this described in terms of children, like that they children can't learn when they're under a lot of stress um, or if they're super anxious, just feeling super stressed about the learning situation or, or in general, because their prefrontal cortex just isn't really online properly when their amygdala is taken over. And I think probably that's a version of what you know, I experience or you're experiencing if you're having, you know, if you're in a period of a lot of stress. And I think that's probably why exercise or just getting a break, doing something that resets your system is so important because you can't like talk yourself out of it. No, you just, no. You just, no. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. And I think, you know, s- things that can be helpful up to a point can end up being not helpful later. Like for instance, we were just talking in our little writing group yesterday about how many words we wrote in a, I, we, we keep journals as we're working on a book, keep journals about just, you know, thinking things through. And basically just, I have, I just, I'm my, I have just started querying a, you know, 80,000 word young adult novel. And I have a 30,000 word document of nothing, but I don't know what I'm doing. You know, what am I doing today? But, and that's, that was useful, but I can easily see how that can become an obsession in itself. I guess that's the problem. If that's, if you have that personality type, which I do, anything can become an obsession in itself, right? But I still think that's a cool idea of, of externalizing the crap, you know, because if you put it down on the page, you are externalizing it. I mean, if, you know, if it works, it's the kind of thing they used to have in creative writing classes in college before advanced fiction writing that I didn't get into. <laughs> yeah. It is funny to go back and look at it and be like, Oh yeah, I remember this stage. Like, you know, it, it, it passed. Um, and that's also what makes it a useful tool. I, as someone who just has deals with anxiety, you know, that's something that it's very much on, on kind of my mind and, and what are tools to, to use, but. I know. I mean, and it's, it, it's interesting actually, because, um, having adult kids, you actually have other people coming at you with tools. And when I had a flare up of that um, horrible stuckness in writing the other day, my older daughter very sternly, cause of course we're all in the house together, right? With COVID, it's like, you have to go get exposure therapy. Like you have to. And it's interesting. Cause I know that that, that probably is the way out. I mean, for somebody who has it as badly as I do. Um, so I think probably, I mean, without having to go through all that time and expense, if we could figure out a way to um, see what those exposure skills are, how they would apply to writing and what kind of exercises around that would be. I actually wonder, I mean, like you have a writing group, if people could try to figure out some of that together. Um, yeah. I'm picturing know. something like blogging almost where you have to post it and let it go. Yeah. that's Which I is mean, scary. Scary. I think that is it. You have to just accept it being good enough. Yeah. That seems yeah. like logically the way out. Like that is what I can tell myself. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. And then it's like, I mean, anyway, no, I think, I mean, it's such a rich topic and something I didn't expect would come up actually. So yeah. it's really interesting, but I, yeah, I think a lot of people, but I think there are just different moments of your life that you're able to like accept that. Like everybody, Megan, definitely. We send each other these pep talks all the time (laughs) when the other person is sort of spiraling, but there's just like times when you can hear that and it makes sense to you on a visceral level. And then other times when it doesn't, I think you're right that like something has to be able to get you out of that. It's interesting. We'll definitely come back if we have any ideas. Um, Well, What's really difficult is when you're captured by it, right? Yeah. And you don't even realize you're doing it. And I mean, I've come to realize there's a thing that I do where, you know, you write something, it's a draft, you know, it's a draft, you're going for feedback. Somebody gives you feedback saying, okay, you should do this. What I'll 
systematically do and not be aware of doing it is instead of hearing like, you need to rewrite this paragraph, I will take that to mean that the entire thing has to be rewritten, at which point I pull apart something that was perfectly serviceable, wreck it, piss them off, you know, make it be late because it has to be redone as they talk me, you know, down and back to where I started off. And that's the, you know, I try to think about it kind of mechanically at this point, where, where is the point at which it's veering off? And so where's the point that I can get in and try to fix? And, and that's what I've come to realize is the point where it's veering off. So my guess is that there's something similar for everybody. Like, you know, maybe there's a life trigger that, that sets off the spiraling, or maybe there's a point in the process that goes awry. And maybe if we can figure out what those things are, then we can start to figure out what to do about them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking more about it and, and, and ways that you can kind of trick yourself into doing what you're supposed to do. So earlier this week, Olivia and I keep looking at each other because we have a text exchange going where one person is saying to the other, read what I read, what you told me yesterday, um, back and forth. But, and I think, you know, to come back around to the original theme is having someone in your life who knows you really well, right. And has those, that friendship who can tell you and recognize from the outside when you're doing something that, and you're willing to hear it from them is really important. And having, having, you know, those, those people in your life, um, which is honestly, it's hard in this, in this uh, time right now, not being hard. around other people. Yeah. And it's really hard um, to have sort of all the practices that are, that keep us mentally healthy, right? Mm -hmm. like, like having a schedule, you know, getting regular exercise, having any sort of regularity in what we do. It's almost like you have to have twice as much discipline to do that at this point, you know, after this past year. And I have a feel, I'm just, I'm really just thinking, you know, I think that that's the main thing that I need to start to do is just have more of a regular life with structure and exercise. And I have a feeling that that, I mean, everyone's gone a little bit bonkers this past year, right? Even though there are, I, I'm, I'm such an introvert that I've actually kind of enjoyed it. And I also am aware of how fortunate I've been that Knockwood, you know, nobody in my family got terribly, terribly ill or, you know, people went through terrible, terrible things this past year. So it makes you, it makes you grateful, you know, um, if things have, like that didn't happen, but it's still, you know, it, 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 a lot of people, our brains are just a little haywire. I mean, I know a lot of us have had insomnia nearly the entire time and it's all connected. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think um, people, so I'm just thinking about my, as usual, thinking about myself, uh, but people who have day jobs that are not writing, right? Um, so then your writing can also be like a secret identity for you, which also makes it hard to develop those relationships that are going to help you get out of it, right? Like, I think, or other things, just like a mom that is writing on the side and nobody knows that she's doing that, or uh, he is a dad uh, doing that, you know, like a parent and it could be your secret identity, but then that can make you feel really lonely. And then, you know, it, it may contribute as well. I think there are different things. Definitely. It is a, it's a lonely life anyway, yeah. you know, I mean, even if, if you are somebody super introverted like me, they're well, they're not now because of COVID because everybody's home together all the time, but there could be moments where, you know, all of a sudden, like I've been working completely focused and then you think like, oh my God, I'm by myself and I haven't spoken to anybody in eight hours, you know? Um, yeah. It's sort of, the, again, like so much that has to do with writing, the, the really great thing and the thing that veers into something not so great. They're just two sides of the same page, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And they so so easily yeah definitely um I was I'm starting something new and was going through the I don't know what I'm doing stage and decided to trick myself this week into it's not a draft it's just more of an outline um and you know that's working right now um but again like you said as far as you know personal life and things going on everything is fairly much at the same level as it's been all year long. So I'm kind of, a, I, I'm habituated to it. It's not easy. I have, um, I'm also very much an introvert and I would love nothing better than to be the only one in my house, <laughs> but I am not, I have to, I have a 
almost, I have a fifth grader and a second grader. So they're independent and not independent at the same time. So, but you know, everything right now, things are pretty even. And so it's okay. So the tricks work, um, but it is interesting to think about, you know, what do you do when they, when they stop? Just thinking about what you were saying about, you know, starting and the anxiety around starting and where you are. There's a woman I admire so much at the writer's room, a, a novelist, Carolyn Parkhurst, who's, who's written a number of successful novels. And when, and I've seen her when she's, when she's just starting something new and you say, you know, how's it going? And she'll say, okay, you know, I'm just letting the characters come into being and seeing what they do. Like she just, she just sort of sits back and sees what the characters do, like how they evolve into who they are. And I just think that's so amazing, you know, to be able to operate yeah. like that and to be calm about it. So when you're doing something that's really research heavy, because that's what I'm working on is it's a novel, but it's also heavily, um, there's, it's, I mean, for, I'm not going to like go into the whole long explanation of what I'm doing, but for lack of a better term, it's historical fiction. And so, um, and it's two very well-known figures. And so um, it took me like a year just to get over the idea of the like, you know, fan societies of these people coming after me with, with pitchforks um, just to even start. But when you're doing something that's heavily researched, when, when do you, um, when have you felt you were successful or just some advice in general or just thoughts on um, stopping the research for now and starting the writing? So I think with interviewing, one thing I've noticed is when you start to feel like everyone's saying the same thing that you've probably talked to enough people, right? Because they're not saying the same thing. It's just that you're hearing the same themes, you know, to the point where it's kind of like, you know what they're saying, you know, what there is to say and how to represent it well, because you're hearing it. Um, and I think with like historical research, it, it deadlines exist, you know, you, you just have to stop at a certain point. And then you can always fill in a blank. That's the thing. I mean, and I know I've felt like I had to have it all. And I always have these kind of voices in my head of, you know, you don't know anything, you know, what do you think you're, you know, why do you think you can say that? You know, you don't, you don't know that there are historians who spend their whole lives doing that. And um, unfortunately, the older I've gotten and the further I've gotten in my career, the, the worse that is. Earlier on, it was like I had the blissful ignorance of not knowing what I didn't know. It, somehow, artificially, you have to stop. Yeah, thank you. Like you said, you know, one of those threads that runs through your work is stigma and let's ending stigma. So, oh, um, yeah, I feel so strongly about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And uh, great talking yeah. to you guys. Good luck. You too. Good talking to you too. Thank you. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Okay. This um, chat so gets cut out, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>